Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. I had intended to preach through this whole chapter last Sunday, and obviously I failed in that endeavor, and I'm probably going to slow down a little bit because of that and finish it out today. So draw it out a little bit. I think there are some lessons we can learn, even from something that seems so unimportant to us. No matter what the Scriptures are, whether it's a genealogy, whether it's history, whether it's some prophecy made about Israel, there's always application we can make to our lives. That's the wellspring of wisdom that is the Word of God. And I believe that the Word of God is so powerful in terms of its power to save men and draw men to God that even a snippet of Scripture such as so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so is powerful enough to lead a man to salvation. I believe that with all my heart. So we're talking about a living, breathing book here, embodied not only on the printed page, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not much difference between the written Word and the living Word. It is one. It is one. And Jesus was the embodiment of that. Everything He said and did, everything He preached, was in perfect agreement with God's Word as given to the prophets and the apostles later. And Jesus Christ would never lead anyone to do anything. God would never lead anyone to do anything that runs contrary to His Word. We live in a day and time where people make decisions and claim to be following God, but yet their decisions contradict what the Word of God says. What I can assure you 100% is God did not lead such a person to do such a thing had an encounter recently with someone that um, uh, we were considering some partnership with ministry and there was, a, there was a situation in their life that I believed was dishonorable to the Lord. And when we attempted to talk about it and look at the Scriptures, this person was adamant that they didn't need to look at the Scriptures because they knew what God had spoken to their heart. And the, it, I was saddened by that because, oh, how you do err knowing not the Scriptures. God would never lead us to go against His Word. So even in these uh, listings here, these tribal listings in Revelation 7, I believe there can be something for us to glean this morning. Last week we started chapter 7. I talked about how I believe this is one of several different what are called parentheses in the book of Revelation. In other words, they're a behind-the-scenes look at what is going on as we progress chronologically through Daniel's 70th week or the period, the seven-year period of tribulation. I've talked before that the dual-fold purpose of the tribulation time after the church has been raptured out is to wake up the nation of Israel and bring them to a place where they realize that they have forsaken God and that Jesus is their Messiah. And number two, the second purpose is, it, is God is pouring out His wrath upon the earth and Jesus Christ is demonstrating that He is the rightful owner of the earth and its title deed and He is the kinsman redeemer. In a sense, God's judgment prior to Jesus' return is a preemptive bombardment prior to a ground invasion. Quite similar to what we see happening in wartime today. But we've gone through the seal judgments, and at the end of chapter 6, we dealt with the sixth seal. I talked about how I believe this is a transition between judgment through natural phenomena 
into judgment via supernatural phenomena and how I believe we're in the context of the midst of Daniel's 70th week. We're at that time where that covenant with Israel is broken and as Isaiah chapter 2 says, God arises to shake the earth. So chronologically, we're at the end of the sixth seal, which is nuclear holocaust, I believe. And now we're into this parenthesis that describes, I believe, a great revival. The preaching of God's witnesses and an ensuing revival that will take place even during these times of judgment. Not the revival of the church, but the revival instituted by Jewish witnesses that will take the gospel, and as a result, there will be Gentile converts from all nations. So that's where we're at today. I took us through the first three verses about the angels who were to seal the servants of God in their foreheads. These servants of God are identified in the following verses. Let's start with verse 4. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Now that's not talking about Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. There's no reason to believe this means anything other than what it simply says. All the tribes of the children of Israel. And then we get specific. Verse 5, of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. The tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000. Of the tribe of Nephtalim, or Nephtali, which is the Old Testament way of spelling it, 12,000. Of the tribe of Manassas, 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi, sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 of the tribe of Zebulun or Zebulun, 12,000 of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000 and of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. So we have 12,000 of each tribe and 12 tribes are listed here. Last week I ended by explaining to you where the 12 tribes of Israel come from, how Jacob had 12 sons, okay? Joseph because of his faithfulness to God and God's use of him in bringing the people down to Egypt to protect and preserve their generation, Joseph's two sons were blessed along with Jacob's other sons. And so really there were 13 sons of Israel that were blessed as sons because Joseph was given two parts, Ephraim and Manasseh. And then we talked about how the tribe of Levi wasn't given physical inheritance in the land. God blessed them and their inheritance was in the Lord because of the stand they took against the idolatry that happened at Mount Sinai. And so Israel in the Old Testament was 13 tribes, but Levi was given a special place. So only 12 tribes were given allotments of land in the land of Canaan. Levi was given cities, and Levi's purpose was to minister to the Lord. The descendants of Aaron were the priests, and then the rest of the Levites ministered to the Lord in terms of the temples, the tabernacle, and temple services. So knowing these things, 12 tribes plus Levi, we look at here at the list in Revelation, and we see 12 tribes listed. We see Levi included. We see Joseph mentioned. But we see that Dan and Ephraim, 12, two of the tribes, are excluded. So we need to understand what is going on here. The question is why? It says in verse 4 that 
there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. So is this an error? Was John, who was a Jewish man, who was raised in Jewish culture, so ignorant of his own history that he made a blundering error here and therefore the Bible cannot be trusted? Or is there a reason these tribes are not listed just like there's a reason why certain kings are not listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ? And that's what I want to answer today. Let's look first of all at the tribe of Dan that is not listed. Okay, Dan was the firstborn of Rachel's handmaid, Bilhah. When Rachel saw that Leah was fruitful and gave birth to four sons, she became jealous and took matters into her own hands and gave Jacob, her handmaid, to wife as a, as a, a, a concubine to raise up children for her. And Dan was the first of these. So Dan really was the first fruits of someone taking matters into their own hands. We can get in trouble with the Lord when we take matters into our own hands. You know, we think there's a better way. Abraham did that. And the consequences of that we see today in the headlines. The consequences of that we see today in Israel and Gaza. God told Abraham that He would give him descendants and number them as the stars of the sea. And Abraham wondered, how in the world could I have a son considering my age or Sarah's age? But God had appeared to him and promised it to him. And then Sarah doubted in her heart. And what did she convince Abraham to do? She convinced him to lie with her maid, Hagar the Egyptian. That must be the way God's going to raise up seed. And as a result, Ishmael was born, but Ishmael wasn't the chosen seed. Isaac was the seed of promise. Ishmael went out. Ishmael is the father, basically, of all the Muslim and Arab peoples. Okay, There are other Muslim peoples that are not Arab in their ethnicity. But Ishmael is the father of all the Arab peoples. Isaac is the father of all the Jewish peoples. And look at the conflict we see today. Because men took matters into their own hands. That could be argued as what happened here. But Dan was the first of Rachel's handmaid. And when Jacob blesses his sons, Dan is mentioned in Genesis chapter 49. So turn to Genesis 49. We're going to be flipping through a lot of Scriptures today, so try to keep up. Genesis 49, I'd already read what Jacob, how Jacob blessed Joseph's two sons last week, but this is what Jacob had to say about Dan. Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 49. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse heels so that his rider shall fall backward. So Dan is prophesied to be a serpent or an adder in the path, a snake that would bite the horseman. So here we have a subtle prophecy that Dan would cause problems with the people of Israel. Not all of these blessings in chapter 49 are blessings. Look what Joseph, I mean Jacob has to say about Simeon and Levi. A father's blessing is not always a blessing. Turn to Judges chapter 18. This is where I believe we begin to see fulfillment in Israel's history of this prophecy given by Jacob. God's prophecies through His prophets always come true. 
I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I encouraged you last week to look at these ending chapters of Judges. When we read the first 16 chapters, we kind of see a chronological picture of what was happening in the days of the Judges following the days of Joshua and the elders, when the people of God began to turn to the idols of the land, and then they, God would send in judgment, and these people would be in bondage, and then the people would cry out to God, and He would give them a judge or a deliverer who would save them out of their troubles, and then they would follow God for a while, but go right back to their idolatry. And the theme of the book of Judges can be summed up very simply. In those days, there was no king in Israel and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. In fact, that is exactly what we live in today here in America. In these days, there is no God in America, and every man does that which is right in his own eyes. That's why we live in a country where people think it's okay for a man to marry a man. We live in a country where Christians actually debate whether or not it's okay to engage in homosexuality, to have an abortion, to have extramarital affairs, all of these things, because men, what is right is what's in their own eyes. And that was what characterized the society in the book of Judges. But when you get to chapter 17, to the end of the book, we, and then you, you include the book of Ruth with it, you have what's called a trilogy of stories that involve somebody from the tribe of Beth, uh, from Judah and someone from Bethlehem. And the first two of those stories are in Judges. One of those involves the tribe of Dan as well. And then you have a, a civil war between some of the tribes. And then you have the book of Ruth, which talks about an incident involving someone from Bethlehem. We call that the Bethlehem Trilogy. The first two parts of that trilogy show the link between Bethlehem Judah and the wickedness that took place in Israel in those days. The last of those stories, the book of Ruth, shows that, that in spite of all of that wickedness, God reserved to Himself a remnant and God reserved to Himself um, something good. And what we see in Ruth is we see the story of how a Moabitess was brought into the family or the tribe of Judah and married to a man from Bethlehem when her, her husband and sons had died. And from her womb would come God's king for Israel, David. And so in this Bethlehem trilogy, you have two very bad examples of idolatry and wickedness followed by something good that would reap fruit for Years actually reaps fruit even today because Messiah came through King David. That happened at the same time. And this is kind of the context of the times and to show how Bethlehem would become a focal point for what God intended to do through Israel. Of course, David, uh, uh, King David was of Bethlehem in Judah. And later, Jesus, in fulfillment of prophecy, would be born in Bethlehem of Judah. So it's funny how God takes small, seemingly insignificant things like a small village in the land of Palestine and uses it for His glory. But anyway, here in the book of Judges, chapter 18, you have the tribe of Dan who was given a plot of land. I'm going to draw uh, Israel here. This is basically Israel. You have... Uh, the Mediterranean coast, you have the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. 
Okay, and then you have Jerusalem is basically right here. And the tribe of Dan was given allotment in the land of Israel somewhere in this area. And it included part of what is modern day, uh, which is part of the, the area of Gaza today. You know, the people of Gaza really are uh, related to the ancient Philistines. And we know all the trouble that was between Israel and the Philistines in the days of the judges. But Dan was given a plot of land and was told to go in and conquer it and establish it, and Dan failed to do so. The tribe failed to do so. We learn this in the book of Judges. And as a result of their inability to drive out the inhabitants of the land, they became dissatisfied. And so what you see in chapter 18 of Judges is a, uh, a contingent of the tribe of Dan decided to migrate north. They sent out some spies who found a city that was quiet and secure, minding its own business in a fertile valley, and they decided that's where we want to settle. And so the spies came back, and I think it was 600 chosen men of Dan went north, and they basically ambushed this city, massacred the people who were minding their own business, not a people that God told them to wipe out because of their sins in the land of Canaan. They went up and just stole this land and settled in the far north. And so Dan took an allotment that was not given to it because they failed to take what God had given them. And that really is the story laid out in Judges chapter 18. Dan forsook its inheritance after failing to take it. And in route, as they migrated, they stumbled upon a Levite who worked for a man living or a man of the tribe of Ephraim. This man Micah, we'll read the chapter, chapter 17 earlier, had hired this Levite to be his own personal priest. And he had built a sanctuary, and he had idols and graven images and, a, and, 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 and an ephod and all of these things that God told the people to stay away from. And he hired this Levite to be his own personal priest. Okay, and so this Levite was Micah the Ephraimite's priest and was engaged in idolatry. Well, the tribe of Dan migrated through the area and happened upon this Levite and, and, and um, convinced him to leave his little temple and his little shrine working for this one man of Ephraim and to come and work for an entire tribe of Israel. And so this, this Levite went from Bethlehem Judah went with the tribe of Dan and became their priest. And as a result, when Dan settled in these northern territories, idolatry was formally introduced into the land of Israel or the kingdom of Israel, the people of Israel. Okay, And we read about this in Judges chapter 18. I'm not going to go through it today. But let's look at verse 30. Actually, let's start with verse 27. And they took, that is the tribe of Dan, they took the things which Micah had made and the priest which he had, and they came to Laish unto a people that were quiet and secure. And they smote them with the edge of the sword and burnt the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Zidon, and this place had no business with any man. And it was in the valley that lieth by Beth Rehob. And they built a city and dwelt therein, and they called the name of the city Dan, after the name of Dan their father, who was born unto Israel. 
Howbeit the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the children of Dan set up the graven image. That is the idol. And Jonathan, who was this Levite, look what it says, Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. And they set them up Micah's graven image which he made all the time that the house or the tabernacle of God was in Shiloh. So this, Beth, this Levite from Bethlehem, Jonathan, came and served the tribe of Dan as an idolatrous priest where an, a graven image was set up and idolatry was formally introduced into the people of Israel when God had commanded them to stay away from these things. Now, I hesitate to even get into this. It's kind of a weird, uh, a weird instance you have in the Hebrew of the Old Testament here. And I don't really know what it means. But right here we're given a genealogy of this priest. His name was Jonathan. He was of the tribe of Levi from Bethlehem. He was the son of one Gershom, who was the son of what is called Manasseh. And this is here at the end of chapter 18. And with this word Manasseh in the Hebrew text, we have... Hebrew is written from right to left. Okay? And it's often written without the vowel points. And what we have here is this Hebrew word, Manasseh. And you have a very strange phenomenon in the Old Testament text where the, the end sound, which makes it Manasseh, actually appears above the line. Okay, Almost as if it's been inserted. Uh, like if I'm writing uh, um, a sentence and I forgot to put a word in there. You know how I kind of stick, we kind of stick a word in there when we're taking notes? It kind of looks like that. There's a suspended noon above the line, and nobody really knows why. Okay? If that noon is taken out, what you have left in Hebrew is not Manasseh, but the word Moses. And so what you have is Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, which you take the noon out, it's the word Moses. We know that Moses had a son named Gershom. So is this telling us that it was the grandson of Moses that led these people into idolatry? And the noon is put in there uh, to provide a nickname to couch that? That's what some people think. I, I don't lean toward those type of interpretations because I believe God preserves His Word and the oldest Hebrew manuscripts we have all bear testimony to this raised noon. But is it possible that within two generations... The man whom God had raised up, Moses, and the elders and Joshua that followed and led the people in righteousness, within two generations it turned to idolatry? Is that how quick something can happen? The answer is yes. Look at our country today. Now I happen to believe that whether this was Moses or not, I don't believe the term Manasseh is an error because many, many Hebrew figures had nicknames. In fact, when you read the book of Proverbs... King Solomon is referred to several times by other names. 
I believe Lemuel is a name used of him at the end of Proverbs. It was his name that his mother gave him. So it's very possible that this was another name given to Moses, or it's possible that this Manasseh was another Manasseh. It wasn't even of the tribe. I believe when we look at chronology that this could have been possible at the time this story happened, but there were lots of people named names, different names that get repeated over and over again. All you have to do is read the genealogy. So I'm not sure why the language is written like that in the Hebrew text. I just find it very interesting, and there is a reason for it, and I'm confessing to you I don't know why in this instance. But the Bible proves itself true so many other places that it doesn't cast any doubt for me on the veracity of God's Word. And it's undeniable that when we turn our back on God as a nation, even a small part of this nation turns its back on God, it's not very long before the whole nation goes that way. You know, we look at the factions that are controlling our society today. They are such a small percentage of the population. The homosexual crowd probably makes up 2 to 3% of our population, and yet they are controlling the direction of our legal system and the decisions that our governments make. Illegal immigration is a small percentage of our society, yet it is guiding the direction of our country. And so when idolatry is introduced, it infests and infiltrates not only the average uh, culture or the average part of society, but in the faithful segment as well in terms of faithfulness to God's Word. So we have this connection of Dan to idolatry introduced into the society of Israel and possibly a connection to Moses' grandson, although I believe this Manasseh was someone else. Dan led Israel into idolatry and then as we read subsequent history, we see that other tribes followed suit. Now, Dan also shows up somewhere else. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 12. We see what happened, I believe, at the beginning of the period of the Judges. I believe chapter 17 and 18 of Judges took place at the beginning, very shortly after Joshua and the elders died. Well, let's go over to 1 Kings chapter 12. This is one of the most important events in the history of the tribes of Israel as recorded in the Bible. Solomon forsook the Lord God. He had many wives. And he gave in to his wives. He allowed them to worship their own gods. He wasn't a man of his house. He wasn't a priest of his household. He couldn't stand up to his wives. And as a result, he allowed them to worship these other gods. And the country that God had so blessed through the kingdom of David and Solomon began to fall apart. And as a result, God judged Solomon and told him that when he died, the kingdom would be divided. That God was going to give his descendants one tribe or a light in Jerusalem for David's sake. But the other ten parts of Israel would go to someone else. And there was a man of the, of, of, um, um, the northern tribes that God sent a prophet to, King uh, Jeroboam, and told Jeroboam, if you will be faithful and turn these people to God, I will give you a sure house. And we read about this in the book of 1 Kings. And Jeroboam was promised blessing if he would follow God. And we read the story of how Solomon's son was so wicked and he didn't want to uh, um, be a benevolent ruler and he wanted to rule over them like some kind of dictator. And the ten northern tribes were just basically, to heck with you, we're not going to follow you. 
Israel to your tents. And so they anointed this man Jeroboam to lead them in fulfillment of prophecy. And Jeroboam was given the kingship over the northern kingdom. And so you had the split between the northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel. The northern kingdom would be called Israel. The southern kingdom would be called Judah. This happened in 975 B.C. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, we see that very shortly after this, Jeroboam refused to follow God and became jealous. He was jealous that the people under his rule would continue to return to Jerusalem and worship in the temple, that the Levites would continue to go down and serve in the temple, and that he would lose his power instead of trusting what God's prophet has said. So as a result, Jeroboam set up a counterfeit religion, a counterfeit worship system to keep his uh, uh, constituents or to keep his people from going back down to Jerusalem and therefore joining with Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, we read how this happened. Look at verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim, and he dwelt therein. And he went out from thence and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people do go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam king of Judah, and they'll kill me and go up to Rehoboam king of Judah. Again, we see someone taking matters into their own hands when God had made a promise. Whereupon the king, that is Jeroboam, took counsel... And he made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin for the people, went to worship before one, even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. The seventh month, fifteenth day of the month, was the Feast of Tabernacles that God had ordained. Jeroboam set up a counterfeit feast the fifteenth day of the eighth month. And he placed in Bethel the priest of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. And so through this incidence, idolatry became the, the stay or became, the, um, uh, became what the northern kingdom of Israel pretty much from day one. So these golden calves were erected one was up here in Dan, and one was in Bethel. Guess what tribe Bethel fell into? The other tribe that's not mentioned in Revelation 7, the tribe of Ephraim. So we have Dan introducing idolatry into the land and being a center of idolatry in the northern kingdom. And then we have Bethel, the other center of idolatry in the northern kingdom. Later, God would send a prophet to Bethel, a street preacher. And he was so bold that he stood right there at that altar and prophesied judgment against it. 
And he prophesied that many years later, a, a king, Josiah by name, would make sure that this altar was destroyed. It was one of the places in the Scripture where someone was prophesied more than a century before he was born by name. And so this altar at Bethel was later destroyed by King, uh, by king jo Josiah. So it's interesting how all of those things are connected. Ephraim. So Dan is not listed in this list. Neither is Ephraim named. We can kind of understand, I believe, why Dan is not listed. But what about Ephraim? Well, Ephraim was the location of the second golden calf. It was also the location of the tabernacle in Shiloh before the temple was built. So it was a place where the people in the days of the judges went and worshipped God before David or Solomon built the temple. So it was a place where the tabernacle had been and later it became a place where idolatry was introduced. Ephraim was the youngest of Joseph's two sons and he, like Jacob, was given the blessing of the elder and was given a tribe just like his younger brother Manasseh in Israel. Micah, the idolatrous man of Mount Ephraim who hired this priest from Bethlehem was of the tribe of Ephraim. Turn back to Judges chapter 17. And I want to read this. It's a very short chapter and it kind of gives you a prelude to what happened with the tribe of Dan in the next chapter. And there was a man of Mount Ephraim, so a man of the tribe of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said unto his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver which were taken from thee, about which thou cursest, and spakest of also in mine ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. So his mother had had money stolen from him, her, and lo and behold, it was her own son who stole it. And so he's admitting it here. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be thou the Lord, my son. And when he had restored the eleven hundred shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver unto the Lord from my hand for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now therefore I'll give it right back to you. In other words, look how messed up this is. The mother had dedicated the money to the Lord so it could be used to make an idol. So she thought she was dedicating something to the Lord and it was something that went against the Word of the Lord. Insane. That's what we have all over the place today. Verse 4, Yet he restored the money unto his mother, and his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the founder who made a graven image and a molten image. And they were in the house of Micah. What's the second commandment, children, of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not make unto thee any what? Graven image. And here we have God's people who received God's law at the hand of Moses and who saw the glory of God on Mount Sinai doing the very thing God told them not to do. What's wrong with people? What's wrong with us? We do the same thing. God have mercy. And the man Micah had a house of gods. So he didn't only just build one idol. He had a house of gods. And he made an ephod and teraphim and consecrated one of his sons to become his priest. Now look at verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That was the problem. Verse 7, And there was a young man out of Bethlehem, Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. He was passing through. 
And the man departed out of the city from Bethlehem to sojourn where he could find a place. And he came to Mount Ephraim to the house of Micah as he journeyed. And Micah said unto him, where, Whence comest thou? And he said, I am a Levite of Bethlehem, Judah, and I go to sojourn where I may find a place. He wanted to find a new place to live. And Micah said unto him, Dwell with me, and be unto me a father and a priest. And I will give you ten shekels of silver by the year, and a suit of apparel, and thy victuals. So the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man was unto him as one of his sons. And Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then said Micah, Now know I that the Lord will do me good because I have a Levite as a priest. Man, doesn't that sound familiar? Now I know the Lord will bless me because I wrote a check and put it in the offering plate. Now I know the Lord will do me good because I went to church on Wednesday night. Now I know the Lord will bless me because I swung in a swing at a street festival to, await, to raise awareness about sexual tra uh, trafficking. Isn't that the mentality we have today? The Bible has a word for that type of thinking. It's called the way of Cain. Cain knew that God required a blood sacrifice to pay for the sins, the sin against God. It had already been demonstrated to his parents when God clothed Adam and Eve with coats of skin to replace their fig leaves. It had already been demonstrated by his faithful brother who brought of the flock to sacrifice before God, probably right there at the gate to the Garden of Eden where that cherubim stood. But Cain decided he wanted to worship God in his own way. Why can't I just bring of the fruit of the ground? I love the Lord. I love Him my own way. That's the way of Cain. The Bible says in the book of Jude, Woe unto them that run in the way of Cain. The way of Cain is pragmatism. It's coming to God on our own terms. And that is exactly what Micah was doing here with this Levitical priest. That is exactly what the tribe of Dan did when it relocated. That's exactly what Jeroboam did when he set up the calves in Dan and Bethel. My friends, you do not come to God on your own terms. It doesn't work that way. You can be a sincere and faithful Buddhist, but you don't come to God except on His terms. And God's terms are the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Me. And then He proved it by raising from the dead. Have you ever thought about what a closed-minded statement that was? Jesus Christ took all of man-made religion and threw it in the garbage can when He said those words. You can be sincere and miss out on eternal life. You can be sincerely wrong. We come to God on His terms. And so I don't care if you call yourself a church. I don't care if you call yourself a Christian and associate your salvation with church attendance and being a good person, you don't come to God on those things. We come to God on His terms. And His terms are by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says if we'll confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart, that means trust in our heart that He was risen from the dead and become the sacrifice for our sins, we will be saved. The things that follow, fellowship of the brethren in church, a cheerful spirit of giving to the Lord, bearing spiritual fruit in our lives, sharing the gospel with others, those are the fruits of salvation. They're the proof of it. 
But salvation itself is free. Now, when there's claims to salvation and no fruit, you've got to wonder, because a good tree doesn't produce no fruit or bad fruit. But salvation, or coming to God, entering His presence, is not the way of Cain. It's not the way of Micah. It's the way of God. Don't make the mistake of thinking you can come to God on any other terms but His own. And therein lies the heart of repentance. Jeremiah the prophet defines it as acknowledging that God is right and we are wrong. And when we acknowledge that, that's where we can find salvation on God's terms. So anyway, we see the tribe of Ephraim connected with the idolatry that ultimately destroyed the tribe of Dan. Go back to 1 Kings again. I just like to discuss the context of these things. There's a reason why things are listed the way they are. John was not an idiot. He, was, he understood his own history. He listed them the way it was given to him, and that was for a reason. Look at 1 Kings chapter 16. And look at Ephraim is connected very specifically to the northern kingdom of Israel. Verse 23, In the 31st year of Asa king of Judah began Omri to reign over Israel. So God judged the house of Jeroboam. It was overthrown by Baasha. Baasha would not follow God in the northern kingdom and was just as wicked. God overthrew the house of Baasha. There was a time of civil war there in Israel. And the people took the captain of the army, Omri, and made him king. And he overthrew his rival in a period of civil war. And it says here that Omri began to reign, and he reigned in Tirzah. Verse 24, And he brought the hill Samaria of Shemer for two talents of silver, and he built on the hill and called the name of the city which he built after the name of Shemer, owner of the hill. He called it Samaria. But Omri wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all that were before him. Worse than Jeroboam, worse than Abijam, worse than Baasha, worse than Elah, worse than Tibni and Zimri, worse than all that were before him. Verse 26, For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, and his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin. That's a reference to the golden calves. To provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger with their vanities. So it was Omri that purchased the hill upon which the city of Samaria was built. Samaria became the capital of the northern kingdom. And when Assyria came in and invaded the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., Samaria was sacked and the people of the northern tribes were carried away captive. But Samaria became the capital city and the center of idolatry. Omri's son Ahab ruled from Samaria. And we know what a wicked, wicked king Ahab was. And how wicked his wife Jezebel was. And how they introduced idolatry into Israel at levels that had never been seen before. All centered from Samaria. And guess where Samaria happened to be? Located in the tribe of Ephraim. So we see both Dan and Ephraim connected with idolatry in the history of Israel. Real quick, turn to Isaiah chapter 7. With regard to Ephraim. 
Isaiah chapter 7, I'm not going to get into the context of it because it all revolves around that great prophecy of the virgin-born child who would deliver the people of Israel. And the southern kingdom at the time was being threatened by both the king of Syria and the king of the northern kingdom. And Ahaz had turned his back on God. And Isaiah went to Ahaz and said, Ask the Lord for a sign and I will prove to you that the Lord's going to overthrow your enemies, which included the king of Syria and the northern king of Israel. And Ahab tried to get all spiritual. Well, I'm not going to ask the Lord for a sign. He was so wicked in his heart. God said, well, I'll give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. And before he's old enough to know right from wrong, both Syria and Israel will be without a king. And of course, we see that come to pass. But in this context, look at this. Verse 18, talking about the enemies of Judah. Chapter 7, verse 8 and 9, I'm sorry. For the head of, Samaria, Samaria, of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, who was the king. And within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. If you will not believe, surely you will not be established. So here we have the word Ephraim used to refer to the entire northern kingdom of Israel. So as you read the prophetic books, Ephraim was, became synonymous with the ten tribes of Israel that followed Jeroboam. And so here it says that Ephraim would be broken. And it was broken. This was fulfilled when the Assyrians came in and invaded the land and destroyed it. And the king Pekah was overthrown. So with all of these things we now know from the Old Testament, I believe these names, Dan and Ephraim, are excluded from Revelation's list because of historical ties to idolatry in the land. Both Ephraim and Dan were the location of those two golden calves, the sin of Jeroboam, and they were tied to what happened in the book of Judges and played out, the results of which played out all the way down until Israel was fully and finally carried away captive from their land. But, be, therein do these tribes lose complete representation in the kingdom of Israel? The answer is no. I want you to look at a couple of verses real quick. Turn to Numbers 13.11, Daniel. Ricky, can you read for me Zechariah 10, verses 6-8? through 8? And this is with regard to Ephraim. I want you to notice something here. Numbers 13.11 Of the tribe of Joseph, namely of the tribe of Manasseh, Gadai, the son of Susi. So in other words, the tribe of Manasseh in Numbers 13 is called the tribe of Joseph. Okay, So we have Joseph being synonymous with Manasseh, the, 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 the tribe of his son, or Jacob's grandson. Zechariah 6, I mean 10, 6 through 8. Mercy upon them, and they shall be as though I had not cast them off, 
for I am the Lord their God, and will hear them. And they have Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice as, the, as through wine. Yea, children shall see it, and be glad, and their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. I will hiss for them, and gather them, for I have redeemed them, and they shall increase as they have increased. So here we have a promise made that God makes that He will restore the house of Joseph. It's called the house of Joseph in verse 6. And then the very same entity that he's talking about is called Ephraim in verse 7. So just like in Numbers 13, Manasseh was called Joseph, so in Zechariah 10, Joseph was called Ephraim. Well, we know therefore that Joseph can be a synonym of either one of, his, of the tribes of his two children. So what happens when we go to Revelation 7? We see Manasseh mentioned and we see Joseph mentioned. Well, who is Joseph in Revelation 7? It's none other than Ephraim. So Ephraim is included in that list. He's called Joseph. There's a reason why the name of Joseph's son is not used, but yet he is there. And it's funny how this passage of restoration of Ephraim calls him Joseph as well. So Joseph... I mean, Ephraim is hidden in that list. What about Dan then? Dan is nowhere to be found. So we can say that Ephraim is in this list in Revelation 7, but Dan is nowhere to be found. I think we have a clue as to why. I'll read very quickly from Judges again. Judges 18, verse 30. And the children, I've already read this verse, and the children of Dan set up the graven image, and Jonathan the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. This phrase here, until the day of the captivity of the land, the syntax, I believe, is a clue that something ended in the day of the captivity of the land. I believe that the tribe of Dan was wiped out. I believe that their line ended when Babylon invaded. It began when, when, when Assyria invaded and took them out, and then what, what didn't happen under Assyria was completed when Judah and its kingdom went captive. So I think this phrase gives us a clue that perhaps the tribe of Dan no longer exists. It was completely wiped out. But... As an entity wiped out, but in terms of existence or a remnant, perhaps not. If you go read the story of Samson, this is where I find the book of Judges very interesting. We tend to read Judges, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and First Samuel as being all chronological. And we don't understand that sometimes the author goes back and there's parentheses in those books, just like we see in Revelation where an event is described that happened at an earlier time. And when you put Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and 1 Samuel together, you can piece together the chronology. And then you learn amazing things. You learn that both Samson and Samuel lived at the same time. Very interesting. In Judges chapter 13, an angel appears to Samson's parents. His father's name was Manoah. And was, they were told that they would have a son who would deliver Israel from the Philistines or begin to deliver them from the Philistines. And it says in chapter 13 that there was a man of Dan. 
Let's see, verse th- chapter 13, verse 25. And this, okay, I'm sorry. Chapter 13, at the beginning, there was a certain man, verse 2, of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and bare not. So Samson was of the tribe of Dan. And when you look at the end of chapter 13, it talks about Samson being born. In verse 25, And the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtaal. Now this reference to the camp of Dan is interesting. I believe there was a remnant who remained behind and refused to follow their brethren north and to take matters into their own hands. And so there was this camp of Dan that existed between Zorah and Eshtaal. Zorah and Eshtaal were down there bordering the tribe of Ephraim, which was where Dan was originally given land. And so a camp or a remnant remained behind. Now, Samson was contemporaneous with Samuel. What Samson did took place, I believe, after the death of Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 7. But turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3. Maybe I'm, I might be boring the mess out of all you all with all this history. I'm sorry, I'll just get into it because it makes everything fit together. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 3. This is where Samuel hears God calling him. And Eli says, go back and listen. When the Lord calls you, you answer and you do what He says. Children, that's the best advice I can give you about getting right with God, about being saved. I'm not going to try to lead you in some prayer and convince you you're saved when I don't know your heart. But we as, our, as your parents can teach you the Gospel. And we can say to you that there's going to come a day we believe when God calls you. And when He calls you, you need to be like Samuel and say, here I am, Lord, I'm listening. And what God calls you to do, you do it. And we know that God will call you, and we believe He will call you to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So you make sure you do that, like young Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 3, 19 and 20. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and he did let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. All Israel, it says. Beersheba is in the far south on the southern border of Israel. Israel is described here as from Dan to Beersheba. So when Samuel was a child, this Danite migration must have already taken place. Because the land that God gave to Dan was right here in the middle. But Israel is described, the whole of Israel is described here as from Dan, the far north, This is where they went after their migration in disobedience to God all the way to the southernmost town of Beersheba. Beersheba. And so Samuel was a small child after the Danite migration or else this would not have been described this way in terms of all of Israel. So Samuel was a child after the Danite migration. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, uh, 5 and 6, I said 1 Samuel 7 earlier about the time of Levi. I'm sorry, that was 1 Samuel 4. But in 4, we have the ark of God captured by the Philistines. And we have Israel overthrown. And the the wicked sons of Eli are killed. And Eli gets the news and he falls backwards and breaks his neck and dies. 
And Eli's daughter-in-law bears a child and dies giving birth and names that child Ichabod, which means the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel because the ark had been stolen. For a short time, the ark was with the Philistines. But when they put it in their temples, their gods would be found laying on their faces before the ark. And the people were plagued with all sorts of diseases and problems. So they eventually stuck the ark on a cart uh, pulled by cattle and sent it back to Israel. And the ark was kept in a couple of different places before it was eventually uh, brought um, by uh, uh, um, David back to Jerusalem where it would be put into the temple. But I believe that during this time the ark was taken, 1 Samuel chapter 5 and 6 is when Samson began to afflict the Philistines. Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 7 verse 2 tells us that the ark was in a place called Kiriath-Yerim for 20 years. This was approximately 1121 to 1101 B.C. The events of 1 Samuel 5 and 6. The ark was in this place of Kiriath-Yerim for 20 years. Eli was a judge over Israel for 40 years. And so Eli would have been 1161 to 1121 B.C. This would have been Eli's judgeship. He was killed. He, he fell over and broke his neck and died. The ark was uh, uh, outside of, of Shiloh for 20 years. Samson's judgeship was for 20 years. It would have began, I believe, during the time or after the death of Eli. So it would have been 1121 to 1101 the same 20 years that the ark was in this place of Kiriath-Yerim. So Samson's judgeship was after Eli's death and it was contemporaneous with Samuel as Samuel was growing up and began to judge Israel. In fact, I believe... What, how did Samson die? You got, any of you kids remember that? What did they do to, to him? They cut his hair and then when he had no strength, what did they do to make him a laughing stock in front of all the people. They cut his eyes out. And in those last moments, they had put him on parade in the temple of Dagon, their God. And what did Samuel pray to God to allow him to do in the last moments of his life? He prayed for that strength. And then what did he do? He began to push on those pillars. And he pushed those pillars and that entire wicked idolatrous temple came falling down and it killed all the wicked Philistines inside so that in Samson's death, more of the enemies of Israel were killed in that one event than in his entire lifetime. When you go to um, 1 Samuel chapter 7, you see the Philistines angry and they gather themselves together, an army, and they go to attack Israel at a place called Mizpah. And it's not mentioned here in 1 Samuel 7 why all of a sudden the Philistines gathered their armies together and went after Israel. I believe it was in retaliation to what Samson had done. As a result of Samson destroying that temple and killing all those people, they gathered their army and they went to attack Israel at Mizpah. What happened at Mizpah? At Mizpah, God gave Israel final victory over the Philistines at a place called Ebenezer. And Samson, I mean Samuel led them to that victory. So it was Samson's death that occasions 
what happens in chapter 7 and Israel's victory over the Philistines at Ebenezer. So, the camp of Dan was apparently an obedient remnant that remained behind in their original tribal allotment on the borders of Ephraim. And that's where Samson came from. A small remnant that didn't follow the rest. And eventually this remnant would have been absorbed into the tribe of Ephraim. So in a way we could say that Joseph mentioned in Revelation 7 obviously is synonymous with Ephraim, but even Dan, the faithful remnant of Dan, is hidden within Joseph. So in a way, Dan and Ephraim are hidden within Joseph of Revelation 7, and God's witnesses for the end times out of Israel gives the tribes complete representation. So, these that are sealed will pass through the tribulation protected and used of God. Those that are not will not be protected from the judgments. Does any of that make sense? Now, I'm not going to be dogmatic about any of this stuff, but it makes sense to me. It all comes together. Just, why, just like why those kings aren't named in Jesus' genealogy. There's a reason. They were not. They were more the bloodline of Ahab than they were the blood of David. It took four generations for the bloodline of David to be restored. But it didn't affect the generational time period. It's funny because in Ezekiel 48, a picture is given of the land of Israel during the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And during that millennial kingdom, the tribes of Israel are given a land allotment. And it looks different than it did in the book of Joshua. In fact, when you look at the land allotments in the book of Ezekiel, each tribe is kind of given a vertical or a horizontal piece of land that extends to the border. And here in the middle, you've got a place for the, uh, for the prince and you've got a place for the temple and the, and the Levites. And then you've got these vertical bands or horizontal bands of tribal allotments. I find it interesting that in Ezekiel 48, in the land allotments of the millennial kingdom, guess who's in the far north? Dan. Dan is given a tribal allotment in the millennial kingdom in the north where he disobediently migrated to in the book of Judges. And to me, that's a testimony that God can take our sin and make something beautiful out of it. He can restore us. Or God may intend something for us and we try to go after it too early. God intended Dan to be in the north in the millennial kingdom. But he wasn't willing to wait on God's timing. But yet out of something so stupid, God can make something beautiful. But all the tribes are represented in the millennial kingdom. Even the tribe of Dan. And in Revelation 7, I believe with these 144,000 witnesses that Ephraim and Dan, though not mentioned, are hidden within the description or within verse 8 when it says of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. How in the world could I have preached all of this last Sunday in one message? Impossible. I want to end with this today. So we have this ceiling of these tribes. 12,000 from each tribe. 144,000 witnesses. Here in Revelation 7, we're told that they're sealed. When we get to verse 9, we're told the result of this sealing. It's a great Gentile multitude that comes to the Lord. 
but we're not told specifically the purpose of why they are sealed. I think it's obvious when you read verse 9 and see this Gentile multitude who comes out of tribulation and washes their robes in the blood of the Lamb. But we have to turn elsewhere to actually get the purpose of this sealing. And it is referred to in the Old Testament book of Joel. Turn to the book of Joel. you got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Let's look at Joel chapter 28, I mean chapter 2 verses 28 through 32. And I'm going to end with this. I've already mentioned this before. We see these verses quoted in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. What does God prophesy here? Verse 28, And it shall come to pass afterward. That's after God regathers His people. We saw that begin to start in 1948. I will pour out My Spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters. This is talking about Israel. People of Israel. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out My Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. What do we see in the first four seals? Blood, fire, pillars of smoke. Okay? Antichrist, war, famine, pestilence, death. Verse 31, The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon into blood. What is that? The sixth seal. Chapter 6. Before the great and terrible day of the Lord shall come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. As the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Well, this context is in the last days when there's wonders in the heavens, blood, fire, pillars of smoke, when the earth, when the sun becomes dark as dark and the moon is blood, when God has a remnant, and when salvation is in Zion and in Jerusalem. So what we have in this passage is the actual ministry of those 144,000 witnesses. In the days of the tribulation, salvation for any Gentile will be in Zion in Jerusalem. It is these witnesses upon whom God will pour out His Spirit who will go forth and preach the gospel of the kingdom. And there will be a great innumerable host of Gentiles, not the ones that have clearly heard the gospel. We'll talk next week about who these Gentiles are not. We know who they are in Revelation 7. But here in Joel, we have the ministry of these 144,000 witnesses. What we see is God in His mercy and grace, after I believe He takes the church out, He's finished with the church. The church is on the sidelines watching God work. A place of rest. John is told, come and see. That's the role of the church. When God fulfills His promises to Israel, I believe. It fits the whole imagery of the Jewish wedding that Jesus uses in John 14 when He says, I come, I will come again and receive you to Myself. We've already talked about that, the biblical basis for a rapture prior to the tribulation. But I believe God in His grace is going to pour out one last revival. One last great awakening in the history of this world before the great and terrible day of His return which is at Armageddon, Revelation 19, which is described in Joel chapter 3, 
right after this passage about the valley of decision. It says here in Joel, your sons and your daughters, your old men, your young men, that is Jews, will lead this revival. In, 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 uh, we see the sixth seal referenced in verse 31. And then in verse 32, whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Where else in Scripture does it say, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved? Anybody know that one? It's on the Romans road. Romans 10.13 If you don't know the Romans road, learn it. It's the Gospel. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Romans 5.8 But God commended His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10.9 and 10 Thou shalt believe in thine heart. If, uh, if thou shalt... Uh, I'm going to get my words wrong here. Man, I should know this. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And then verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then we've got Romans 12, 1 and 2. It doesn't end there with salvation. Salvation is the beginning. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and an acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. That's what salvation produces in the life of the believer. But Romans 10.13, Paul is quoting Joel chapter 2 here. He's quoting it and applying it to the church age in the dispensation of grace. In this age, whosoever will call upon the Lord shall be saved. And in a time of tribulation, the same applies. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The sad thing is, those who heard the name of the Lord and refused it in this church age, 2 Thessalonians says they'll be deceived, they'll believe a lie. But friends, there's many who've never truly heard the Gospel. That's why we send missionaries to the far corners of the earth. That's why people like Ricky and Janine have the great privilege of starting what 144,000 witnesses are going to finish. When Jesus said in Matthew 24 that this Gospel of the Kingdom will be preached into all the world, then the end shall come. The church starts it. It started at Pentecost. A shadow fulfillment of Joel 2. It ends with the preaching of these sealed witnesses. And when Christ returns, truly the entire world will have heard the Gospel. I'm going to end there today. Next week I'm going to talk about Acts chapter 2. Because what happened at Pentecost was a shadow fulfillment of what is ultimately fulfilled in the tribulation period. And I want to talk about the nature of Old Testament prophecy. I find it very interesting that Old Testament prophecy has a dual nature. There's always a shadow, initial fulfillment that points to an ultimate fulfillment. We see this with Emmanuel in Isaiah chapter 7. The sign that King Ahaz would see was immediately fulfilled when Isaiah took a virgin to be his wife. And in the very next chapter, he, they give birth to a son. 
And it said that this son, Mahershalahashbaz, by the time he's old enough to know right and wrong, these two kings would be overthrown. But of course, this birth of this Mahershalahashbaz pointed to the ultimate virgin birth, which was Emmanuel, Jesus the Messiah. We see this shadow fulfillment with the ministry of John the Baptist. It was a shadow fulfillment of the prophecies about Elijah coming. About the messenger preparing the way of the Lord. We'll see that again ultimately fulfilled in Revelation with those witnesses. We see this with the two olive trees that God used in the time that Israel returned to the land. The captivity returned. You see Joshua and Zerubbabel, an initial fulfillment of a prophecy in Zechariah 4 that's ultimately fulfilled in Revelation 11. So I find it very interesting that Old Testament prophecy has a dual fulfillment. An initial fulfillment to increase the faith of those living in the day that it was given and an ultimate fulfillment in the consummation of all things as regards Jesus Christ, salvation, and the end of time and the restoration of all things. And we see that with this prophecy in Joel. We, saw a, we see a shadow fulfillment when Peter is preaching at Pentecost. And what happens thereafter, what started with Jewish preachers in Acts chapter 2, Jewish preaching, Jewish preachers, Jewish witnesses, the first church was Jewish, my friends. What did it produce? It produced an innumerable multitude of Gentile converts. Acts chapter 10, beginning with Cornelius, Paul's missionary journeys, so that by the end of Acts, the gospel from the mouths of Jewish witnesses had gone into all the world and the world had been turned upside down even during the time of Paul. Just like in the books of Acts, book of Acts, so will it be in the tribulation. Jewish witnesses, Jewish preachers, and a whole multitude of Gentile converts. It's amazing how God starts something and He always finishes it. So next week we're going to talk about that Gentile multitude. And praise God. But I'm thankful that my hope is in Jesus Christ now and the blessed hope of the believer awaits those that are saved. And we don't have to be led behind, left behind. Those Gentiles that come to Christ during that time will pay for it with their lives. Be saved today and escape these things. Be saved today and escape these things. Be saved today and escape eternal hell. How can we be saved? Call on the Lord and you will be saved. Don't call upon yourself or make excuses for yourself. Call upon the Lord. What does it mean to repent? It means to acknowledge our sin. Acknowledge that God is right and we're wrong. And there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. And then look and understand what God did through us for us through Jesus Christ. Put your trust in that. Faith is trust. Trusting in Christ like you would a parachute that you cling to as a plane is crashing. That's not a religious ritual. That's a decision of the heart. And it's a faith that God has to give you. But the Bible promises that if we'll humble ourselves in the eyes of the Lord, He will lift us up. Acknowledge your sin. Give it to God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection. Turn from putting your faith and trust in yourself, your religion, your circumstances and fall at the foot of Jesus Christ. Call upon the Lord, and thou shalt be saved. Praise God for simple salvation. And praise God for the Word of God that tells us these things written for the common man.